Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a special series of discussions about US politics and the Trump presidency, or as we journalists call it, the gift that keeps on giving. I'm Freddie Gray, I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by Matthew Brodsky, who is a senior fellow at the Security Studies Group, as well as Andy Basevich, who is the author of America's War for the Greater Middle East. So, gentlemen, we had the news that, well, Donald Trump made a very firm statement that he was withdrawing from the Iran deal. There would be a small window of time for Iran or or other powers to try and find some sort of compromise. But it was a fairly, I think, fair to say, aggressive move out of the Iran deal. Matt, you think this is good news, don't you? Can you explain why? Well, first, let me just say, I think that we need a deal that prevents Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And that's what we were promised from 2012 till 2015 under the Obama administration. But they promised us a Lexus and they brought back a lemon. And so what we have is something that does not work. And they've been not telling the truth about that to the American people for a very long time. So I wanted to see the deal then made stronger. And uh, unfortunately, that hasn't been able to happen. So in the same way that you wouldn't continue to take medicine if it's not treating the, the issue or the problem, there's no reason to keep a deal in place that does not, in fact, prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. So fact, we need something if else. If I understand it, Matt, the reason it isn't working is that the E3 powers, that's Britain, Germany and France, are not checking properly on whether Iran is, is, a, is holding up its side of the bargain. Well, I mean, frankly, it would appear that what they would really want is to make money off of conducting business with Iran and that that's far more important than strengthening the deal. And that's what we've seen in, in several months of a concerted National Security Council-led U.S. effort to work with the Europeans, to come up with fixes to to the very fundamental flaws within the agreement that make it just simply not workable. Before I move to Andy, what international standards of verification would suffice for you? Well, first of all, it would have to include the uh, military dimensions, and, th- and that's just huge to begin with, because we have to understand, and it's especially clear after the Israeli Mossad intelligence agency brought forward a ton, literally a half ton, of documentation showing the previous military dimensions, or what is called in the lingo PMDs. These were supposed to be verified by the IAEA before the agreement was reached, so that we would know where and what the work Iran had done, which is, again, work but, but, outside uh, of uranium enrichment. We have Perhaps no- I've been reading fake news, but when, did the, when were those Mossad documents, when did they come from? They were from uh, over a decade ago is what they were showing, the history. But and so the- they, they went post-deal. Right, but that doesn't make a difference because you have to understand that the entire concept and the way that the United States went into this agreement was to accept the Iranian line that they weren't trying to weaponize their program. That's why at the very end of the negotiations in 2015, they caved in on the demand, whereas they were saying, we need to see all of the previous work you've done for militarization. We just accepted the contention that they weren't doing anything militarily. So we didn't then ask or receive adequate inspections on the military side, such as Parchin. Because again, the nuclear program 
there's the uranium enrichment aspect or working with plutonium, but there's also making detonators. There's the ballistic missiles. There's computer modeling. There's the miniaturization. There's a ton of other aspects of the nuclear project that we don't have access to and that is not being addressed simply because we caved in on the inspection part and on verifying the previous military aspects, those dimensions of their program. So we built this all on a bunch of lies, which Iran then sent to the IAEA, a bunch of lies, and that is how this deal came to be. Its existence itself is literally breaking the agreement. Okay, Andy, over to you. I mean, this was a rotten deal says Matt, that Trump has wisely replaced. How, do, you, do you agree with that assessment? I'm assuming not. <laughs> Your assumption is correct. I, I think Matt and I disagree fundamentally on the facts of the matter. And, and let me emphasize, I'm not uh, a great expert on all of the specific details of this agreement. But it seems to me that its purpose was not to transform Iranian policy into something that's sort of benign, agreeable, and submissive. The purpose was to put in place a set of agreements that would prevent Iran from developing nuclear warheads in exchange for easing of the economic sanctions. And uh, again, maybe all the news I read is fake news, but as far as I can tell, they have been abiding by that agreement. And for us now to unilaterally withdraw, disregarding the concerns of our allies, no doubt deferring to the governments of Saudi Arabia and Israel, strikes me as immensely unwise and likely to unforeseen consequences. I mean, among other things, I would be at least somewhat reassured if the president or his people laid out some kind of a realistic, plausible strategy for going forward, and we've heard nothing on that. I can address any of those. Go ahead, Matt. To begin with, when it comes to just laying out what it is that that the United States is going to do next, the fact is this reclaims U.S. leverage that the Obama administration not only parted with, but then gave all the gifts up front. So what this does is allow the U.S. to then have a better position to stand on or a better leg to stand on, I should say, in order to gain concessions to get a better deal. This is an absurd statement. It is an absurd statement. We don't have additional leverage when we have abandoned an agreement solemnly made and decided we're just going to go ahead and do what the hell we want to do. Why would anybody negotiate with the United States. We have zero because in the United States, it's not a solemn agreement. What it was was a unilateral action by a U.S. president that's frankly not the way our Constitution works. It has to be passed as a treaty. Unilateral action was Trump announcing that he's disavowing an agreement that we made that's with our how our Constitution is as a country. Matt, on the unilateral point, I mean, I could see that you're saying it, it was an executive decision. It wasn't how the American government is supposed to do things. But you can't call it unilateral, can you? I mean, it was agreed with America's traditional allies. I mean, so this is a substantial move from Trump to effectively dismiss. uh... I'm not saying it's not substantial at all. And I think it's a good lesson for anyone who is ever going to be a president in, in the United States. 
that if they're going to engage in a treaty, then it has to be passed through Congress, the Senate specifically, as a treaty, because it needs to have the American buy-in from the American public. And that's what the Senate does. Andy, over to you. I guess all I have to say is, now that uh, President Trump has turned over the apple cart, pleasing people like Matt, uh, we're just going to have to wait and see if indeed he's going to be able to demonstrate this art of the deal that he claims to be a master of. Andy, just to say, I mean, even if you take the idea that Iran was complying with with its side of the deal, and and let's face it, I think that's a bit of a, a mystery. Even if Obama's deal worked, it was going to stop, and then effectively the brakes would be off on Iran acquiring nuclear weapons. Is that a situation you think is ideal for America and the Middle East? Well, I don't know that there's anything that's ideal, but if I can kick the can down the road for 10 years or so, I'm willing to accept that. It seems to me, one of, one of the differences here, I think, is that there are people in one camp who obsess about the Iranian regime, have constructed this notion that it is this great threat to world peace that would seem to be the view of the Trump administration. In the other camp, and I have to admit I'm in that camp, are people who think we should be playing a longer game vis-a-vis Iran, who see in Iranian society, not in the government, in Iranian society, certain moderating tendencies, an interest on the part of particularly the younger generation in embracing modernity. And, And my bet is if we try to encourage those tendencies over an extended period of time, we could bring about the change in Iran that would lead Iran to becoming less of a threat than it may be perceived to be today. I agree with what you're saying there. The problem is we totally disagree on the strategy, and I don't, I don't think you quite follow that what the Obama administration did was to lock in the United States foreign policy with the regime, not with the people. It's against the people. That is what, that's why every Norwoo's New Year greeting that the president issued was directed to the regime instead of the people like it always had been before. This time we're actually standing with the people. Matt, presumably you're referring there to the ongoing protests in parts of Iran that have been reported a fair bit. Right. A true grassroots movement that does not get a lot of coverage in the United States, unfortunately. But you can forgive people for being a bit cynical about these Arab Spring type uprisings. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you're just sticking to the idea of nuclear prevention, then what we need is a deal that actually prevents their nuclear weapon. Because Iran is a rogue nation that supports terrorism and is essentially going throughout the region right now and has taken over the capitals of Yemen, of Lebanon, of Syria, and uh, Iraq. So they're not someone on our team. So I would like to, of course, hope that the people in Iran get a structure of government that works in their behalf. Of course, I'm absolutely in favor of that. But in the meantime, since this is what they have right now, in reality, they need to be prevented. And the agreement we have does not. It is not verifiable because we can only verify what the IAEA has access to and even what the IAEA is supposed to be able to to take a look at. In many cases, as one of their uh, inspectors has said, they've stopped asking. So they're not even willing to go through the, the motions anymore. Andy, do you think you're, are you underestimating the malevolence of the Iranian regime? 
I just find it fascinating, a narrative that ascribes to Iran all the difficulties and problems in the Middle East. That seems to imply that the United States of America over the past 10, 15, 20, 30 years has been a passive bystander. Of course, that is not the case. And indeed, it is because we have sought to remove regimes that we viewed as problematic, that we have sown the seeds of anarchy, and that have worked to the advantage of the Iranian regime. Yeah, I find it equally fascinating for you to maintain the viewpoint you are, while at the same time, Iran is enabling a a genocide of half a million people in Syria, and you're trying to put them, I don't know, I guess on par with the United States or something, is just a tad preposterous. They're a revisionist state. They're not comfortable within their borders. They want more. That's very clear. And they're acting on it. And there's a reason that the rest of the region is, of course, worried by that. But, of course, that is a separate aspect from the nuclear component. Their rogue behavior, of course, is not even addressed in the nuclear deal. So it's unbelievable that we have sunset clauses built on, I don't know, throwing darts at a clock as opposed to anything behavior-related. Rogue behavior, like the United States invading Iraq in 2003 based on fraudulent intelligence. You're right. So you're, you're one of those people who's saying that we were there just bombing and killing people. See, I don't think you need to be flippant. I think you can actually say, like me, you disagreed with the two, 2003 invasion of Iraq. We made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, but Matt, you, I mean, you, you're winning the argument uh, because we no longer had the deal with Iran. Uh, we've got uh, lunatics like John Bolton, who is advising the president, who himself is utterly incompetent. Let's talk a bit about, I don't, I don't want justice to descend into a shouting match. Let, let's talk a little bit about John Bolton, because he's obviously a, a very instrumental figure here. I think you'd both agree with that, would you not? Well, I, there's quite a lot of talk about John Bolton's preference for MEK. Rather strange group, as far as I understand it. Can you, can you explain a bit about that to me, Matt? Who are MEK? What is their role in Iran? They were considered a, uh, against the regime and Iran. They were listed by the United States as a terrorist group, then delisted. And they happened to provide a wellspring of intelligence for the United States, including being the ones who discovered that Iran was working on the nuclear program and made a lot of other nuclear-related discoveries that have all since proven to be true. In addition to that, they've also had a lot of excellent intelligence as far as the Revolutionary Guards activities in Syria as to their order of forces there and their placement of bases. So, Is there popular support for MEK in Iran? I'm not, I'm not trying to entrap you. I don't, I don't know. But I, we have an article this week from someone who lived in Iran for 10 years and said he's never met a single MEK supporter. I don't know for sure that they are, but what I do know is that they've created other councils and organizations that are basically from those members who have gained influence uh, in exile and that those other places like the National Council uh, for Resistance have their external leadership. They have a a female president. They just had a conference that was here in Washington over the weekend. So they have an organization. I don't know if I don't know how big of a deal they are inside of Iran. I think if you were to, though, ask the average average Iranian, do you like your regime, they would say no, and then that would match up with a lot of what 
their platform pretends to be right now. Andy, let me put that to you. I mean, th what if there really is a democratic, moderate, liberal resistance in Iran that really does want to overturn this regime? And Donald Trump is far more intelligently than most people are giving him credit for appealing to that element in Iranian society and helping it overturn the Iranian state. To my mind, it, it does not follow that if there are indeed large numbers of Iranians who would like to see this regime go away, matter of fact, I suspect that's the case, it does not necessarily follow that those same Iranians want the United States intervening in any forceful way to determine the future of that country. The Iranian people would like to uh, exercise that function. Yeah, I mean, no one is suggesting that in the United States, any form of invasion. I mean, so many of the tired talking points that I'm basically hearing now and more from Andy are the, you know, the straw man arguments that Obama made that it's this deal or war. We're no closer really to war right now than we were with Iran. Uh, but we are quite close to war in Syria, though. Actually, well, the United States' role there essentially would end up being what type of support would it like to uh, offer Israel. It, it seems pretty, pretty much like the die is cast that the Trump administration does not want to engage with Iran kinetically in Syria and that it would like to withdraw its soldiers, 2,000 of which are basically in eastern Syria and sitting on top of the vast oil reserves that are there. One can argue whether that's smart or whether, whether that's not, but the immediate, immediate threat there is to Israel and is to Jordan and to Saudi Arabia. And they may end up taking the lead in engaging with Iran there, as Israel obviously has been doing tit-for-tat types of attacks and responses recently, as recently as yesterday. And the United States may play a supporting role, but I don't see the United States doing anything beyond reacting defensively as it did when, say, little green Russian men in early February with the IRGC tried attacking them in the Conoco gas fields in eastern Syria. And then they ended up uh, calling in an airstrike and killing around 200 of those little green Russian men and the IRGC, or when they downed uh, Syrian aircraft because it was near Raqqa. Okay, Matt. So, so what you're saying is that although a regime change may be clearly on, on, on the Trump agenda, war is not. In Iran, I, I think like most anyone, Democrat or Republican, would essentially like to see a better future for the Iranian people in a different government. But that does not mean that the United States is going to go and, you know, invade Iran or go to war with Iran. That doesn't that, you know, that, but the Syrian equation is quite hard to solve, isn't it? Well, the Syrian equation is very difficult to solve. And the problem with the Syrian equation, I've been very much involved in that as far as my research for years, is that uh, it, it doesn't, the solutions don't age like fine wine. They rot like bananas. The longer we wait <laughs> to have a solution, the worse and worse they get. So, unfortunately... Is that, is that because, of, because of Iran's growing influence, you think? Well, I mean, there, there's a, a large number of factors, but it, it's quite clear that the Assad regime would not have survived without Iran and its right arm, Hezbollah from Lebanon, being involved. Uh, they saved them in 2013, and then that still didn't work. So by 2015, Russia had to come in. And so now it's Russia and Iran are essentially the puppeteers of the but Assad regime. Assad hadn't survived, what, who would have taken over? I don't know, but I would basically reject the idea that there's uh, 
you know, the, the constant argument that you hear is don't push over anyone because you don't know what you're going to get next. I think that that's a very good case to have made when it comes to Gaddafi in, in Libya. And one could have even made that case well against Saddam Hussein in Iraq. When it comes to American interests and it comes to Bashar al-Assad, he was literally a puppet, not to the extent that he is now, but of the Iranian regime. And at every single point that he could since he took over power in 2000, he has done anything he could against American interests, including turning Syria into the primary entry point into Iraq for jihadists trying to kill American soldiers in Iraq. So he's been on the wrong side of every issue that Republican or Democrat that the United States has been on, and therefore... The, even amongst uh, people on the right and conservatives who I've had to argue with, they've said, well, you might get X, Y, or Z after Assad. I've said Assad is as bad as they come for what we want. But again, we didn't have to be the ones doing that, you know, carrying out the regime change. Andy, let me put that to you, that America is perhaps, if I understand this properly, America's hands are tied somewhat diplomatically by the Iran deal in Syria. And that by withdrawing from this, America can influence the Middle East more positively. Is that a fair summary of your argument, Matt? Yeah, that boils it down is that essentially since this deal locks us into being with the Iran regime, since Obama considered Syria to be part of what he called Iran's regional equities, which means we would keep our hands off of Syria. This means that also included Lebanon we have essentially pledged to work hand-in-hand with the Iranian regime. Without this deal, we can now change our foreign policy to something that actually works for us and our allies, as opposed to working for our enemies, which really makes no sense and is not in the U.S. interest. Andy? Well, I mean, our, our disagreements are so profound, I think it's very hard for us to have a useful exchange. I mean, a couple of points. The first is I, I do not... Uh, agree with the depiction of Iran as this great uh, bugaboo. It seems to then, me. I mean, we really don't have much to talk about. You're absolutely right, because you proceed from a place that is essentially not on this planet when it comes to reality within the American foreign policy world. It, it just is not. Well, let's draw a truce there and, and hope that the Middle East resolves itself more peacefully. Thank you very much both. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectator.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a Spectator Moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. <laughs>